Good morning, church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is, it's quite warm in here. So you can use your connection cards to connect with us. You can share your prayer requests with us. Um, you want to join a small group or come to the newcomers thing. You can also use them as fans. And if there are empty spaces near you, you can use multiple ones to have a, a larger fan. It's a multi-purpose gathering here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> Netflix released the third season of a show called Love is Blind. Yeah. We have some viewers here. Now, I am not, uh, I'm not really a reality TV viewer, but my wife is, uh, especially with these dating shows, and so I was in the room while she was watching. And usually she gets tired of my snarky commentary and asks me to leave. But this time... Uh, my interest had been piqued by a video I saw on TikTok of one of the contestants putting eye drops in his eyes to pretend that he was fake crying and, broke, and, and he expected and assumed that the producers would cut it, which is pretty hilarious. So I, I limited, because of that, I limited my snarky commentary and was allowed to stay for a bit. <laughs> now to backtrack a, a quick second, the, uh, the concept of the, of the show is that for 10 days, 30 contestants go on dates in pods where they can only talk to each other. They can't see each other. They start with speed dates, and then they filter down potential couples down into, into longer dates. And if they like each other enough to get engaged, which feels like a bit of a significant escalation, but <laughs> I understand it as a mechanism for reality TV, then they get to see each other. And then they go to a couple's retreat at a resort because that's just like normal life. <laughs> and you get to see how they proceed toward the wedding day. Navigating physical intimacy, conversations about money, meeting each other's families, all while planning a big event. So it's, it's sort of like the, the cultural norm that we have around dating with one, well, one major part. And obviously that's not just one part because of all the other things they're navigating that I just mentioned. But again... The premise is, can an emotional connection without an initial physical attraction survive? It's, a, it's a, like, a, like a twist on so-called normal dating where, by and large, you get to choose. And oftentimes, we do, make, we do make initial judgments based on physical attraction. Think about online dating. It's, you're swiping right, based on physical attraction and so on. Um, it's, or like, um, I don't know what to call it now, like old school attraction where you just see someone you want to get to know? <laughs> what, what do we call that now? Traditional <laughs> geriatric dating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, um, anyway, based on the, the so this is the third season just came out, and based on the first two seasons, you have a seven percent chance, four out of sixty, of getting married and lasting longer than four years. You have a fifty-three percent chance of getting engaged. But if you get engaged, you have a 38% chance of splitting before the wedding day, a 31% chance of splitting on the wedding day, and a 19% chance of splitting after the wedding day. You have an almost 100% chance of embarrassing yourself <laughs> and growing your social media following. I feel like, you know, those are sort of like Powerball odds, right? So, uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> That's my intro to this, this, uh, this topic, because Jesus gets asked about divorce and marriage. And, uh, and he talks about it. How, how was that? That was, that was uh, thank you. Thank you. I was just laying the, laying the groundwork here. 
<laughs> Praise the Lord for reality TV, occasionally. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus gets asked about divorce, talks about marriage, and he says some hard things. Certainly things that seem very stark and black and white. And, and as Watson already said, I, I, I also want to name that this is a sensitive area of conversation for many of us. Because we all inhabit a broken world. We all go through life in general and come up against specific topics with our own triggers and our own traumas and our wounds and scars. So giving a content warning is not to say we can't handle hard topics. It's, it's to acknowledge that some stuff may have happened in your past or it may be in your present that might affect how you hear Jesus' words and how you hear my words about Jesus' words. This is why we didn't just read scripture after the announcements as usual. We wanted, well, felt like it was important to provide context and care. But we've actually had a lot of hard sayings recently uh, from Jesus. Last week on, on Youth Sunday, can we give it up for the, for the youth and the kids? Uh, so last week, this is, the, this is from, from the passage that the, 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 the young people talked about. Last week, Jesus predicted his own death as Jesus' chosen one, which, you know, kind of a downer for, like, the chosen one of God. He encouraged his disciples to be the least of all and to be the servant of all, be great by not trying to be great. He told them they are not the only ones trying to do good. They don't have a monopoly on good intentions or good actions. He gave a warning about keeping people from the kingdom of God, that it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and for you to be thrown in the lake. Said it would be better to remove parts of your body that cause you to sin. So to paraphrase one of last week's Youth Sunday preachers, Mr. Nate Watson, uh, that's some heavy stuff from Jesus, right? It's some heavy stuff. Well, today is, uh, we're in Mark 10, and so I want to invite you to stand to reverence the reading of God's word. Mark 10, verse 1, Jesus left that place and went beyond the Jordan and into the region of Judea. Now, remember what we've been learning, that place matters in Mark's gospel. Geography matters, so he is in Jewish, not Gentile territory, and he's moving toward Jerusalem, the place where he will eventually suffer and die. Crowds gathered around him again, and, and as usual, he taught them. Some Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders, they came and trying to test him, they said, they asked, does the law allow a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered, what, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a divorce certificate and to divorce his wife. It's Deuteronomy 24. Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your unyielding hearts. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. It's Genesis 1:27. And because of this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. Genesis 2:24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Inside the house, the disciples asked him again about this. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a wife divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. A passage like this hits all of us in different ways. There are those among us who have never been married, never been divorced, those who are partnered, those who are, there are unmarried couples who are living together, there are those who had sex before and outside of marriage, and those who have yet to have sex. There are those in first marriages, 
those who have remarried, those who are separated, those who are divorced, those who are widowed, those who are thinking about divorce or remarriage. There are children of divorce, children of blended families. And also, there are queer folks who hear these words a particular way because of how Christians have used these words against them. There are spouses and children who have experienced abuse within the context of marriage and marriages and families who hear these words a particular way because of how Christians have used these words against them. What I want to do this morning is to, is to wrestle with this, is to let you in on my wrestlings with this. Because it's really important to, to wrestle with God. It's, it's important to wrestle with things that Jesus says and does that are hard, especially if they're hard. Because if Jesus is worth following, and I believe he is, his words here need to be interrogated. We need to push into it. Maybe more accurately, our understanding of his words needs to be interrogated. Let me begin by offering the reminder that, that one verse, one passage, one saying, one interaction does not equal the whole. Okay? It is a data point. It is not the whole picture. As the saying goes, a, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. Okay? A text without context is a pretext for a proof text. And that means you can pretty much use any verse to say what you want it to say. You just have to leave out all of the stuff that doesn't support what you want to say. See, for example, the slave Bible. Cut out all the parts about liberation to justify the dehumanizing mistreatment of black people. Or so many readings of the Bible that, that ignore the through line of, of the justice of God. So it's important to take this passage for what it is, as much as we can. And it's important to take this passage as one encounter with Jesus, together with everything else he did and said, everything else that makes up the story of God that we find in Scripture. And with that, we begin with the context that these words of Jesus were given in response to a question from the Pharisees about divorce. Does the law allow a man to divorce his wife? Now, point one, Bible interpreters, they try to use words that are familiar to us so that we can better understand what was happening thousands of years ago and in cultures far, far away. Okay? The word divorce is one such word. We have a modern practice called divorce, and this is not dissimilar to what we read in the Bible in that it marks the end of a marriage. But marriage and divorce were very different in that day, in the culture of the day. And while I'll say more about marriage later, the word for divorce in the Bible could and should more accurately be described as dismissal. Because that's what it was. The man, the sole agent in a patriarchal society, had the right to dismiss his wife, who in a patriarchal society was considered under his authority to do with as he pleased. Moreover, in a patriarchal society, if you're getting what I'm putting down, this divorce dismissal was accepted practice. That, that, that's what it was for all of the Jewish sects in Jesus' day. They were just applying Moses' instructions in Deuteronomy 24, which the Pharisees reference when Jesus asked. They say, this is what Deuteronomy 24 says, let's, let's say a man marries a woman, but she isn't pleasing to him because he's discovered something inappropriate about her. So he writes up divorce papers, hands them to her, and sends her out of his house. Dismissal. In the, in the version of this encounter with Jesus that we find in Matthew's gospel, because Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, Matthew changes the phrasing. 
to on what grounds does the law allow a man to divorce his wife? Because it was a given practice. But it was a very real debate on what grounds. It's a very real debate between the two main rabbinic schools of the day. Okay? So there was Rabbi Hillel and there was Rabbi Shammai. Okay? Hillel and Shammai. Shammai was the more conservative rabbi who said that only sexual misconduct could be grounds for divorce. Hillel was the more permissive interpreter who said that a man could dismiss his wife if she spoiled a meal. Another rabbi, Akiba, said that finding someone more beautiful could be grounds for dismissal. And the historian Josephus casually mentions dismissing his wife because he was displeased with her behavior. This was the patriarchal prerogative. And so, as feminist theologian Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza writes, it was because of the male's hardness of heart. That is because of men's patriarchal mindset. In the words of another theologian, Don Jewell, Forbidding of divorce is clearly a statement about the status of women in society. Crucial to their survival has always been economic support. Easy divorce of women with young children in that time meant abrogating responsibility for caring for the most important members of society at a time of maximum vulnerability. See, this certificate of dismissal, while it might seem misogynistic to us, it was actually it was a mechanism to protect a woman from being accused from, of adultery if she wanted to find another husband, which she needed to do in, say it with me, the patriarchal society of that day. The certificate meant that she was legally allowed to be married to someone else, that she could move on with her life. Now, let me be clear. I don't think that's a good practice for today. I think that society and marriage and divorce have moved more towards equality over the last few thousand years, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. I think it's okay to, for us to look back at various cultural practices and be glad we're not there anymore. Uh, but let's not miss the movements of God in those times that got us to where we are now. Does that make sense? So notice also that the Pharisees ask about what is allowed. Jesus talks about what is commanded. That's the difference between asking, what do I got to do to get by, and what makes life worth living? No wonder Jesus responds by saying, Moses wrote this commandment for you because of your unyielding hearts. Because you needed a get-out clause. And instead of arguing about the law, he goes back to Genesis. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, Genesis 1. And because of this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife, and the two will be one flesh, Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Now, inside the house, the disciples have a follow-up conversation. They ask him again about this. He said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a, a wife divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, let me... Uh, address the last few verses first. The penalty for adultery in the law of Moses, we see in Leviticus 20, was death. Death by stoning. And yet in John 8, when Jesus is confronted with a woman who was caught in adultery, brought to him to be stoned, what does he do? He recognizes her vulnerability. 
He recognizes her victimhood, even as someone who has done wrong. He protects her. He forgives her. He offers grace and a new lease on life. Now note that the man caught in adultery was nowhere to be found because hashtag patriarchal society. I think, and more learned scholars do too, that Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's using exaggerated language, language to make the point he's trying to make about marriage, which we'll get to in a moment. And we have precedent for this use of hyperbole literally a few verses prior where he talks about removing parts of your body if they cause you to sin. Right? All of us have parts of our body that cause us to sin, that cause us to hurt or harm others or even ourselves. Something we say, something we type. Is Jesus displeased that we haven't actually removed those body parts? I don't think so. Because the point he was trying to make was about something bigger and better. It was about life in the kingdom of God. So I don't think he's saying anyone who is remarried is living in sin and in a state of perpetual adultery and worthy of death. I don't think that's a faithful reading of Scripture in context. What then is he saying about marriage? Jesus is doing something really important by returning to Genesis. He's not playing with the Pharisees and what the law allows or doesn't allow. He's going back to God. Okay? He's going back to what God intended. Now, these verses from Genesis have been used in so many ways to hurt and harm God's image bearers. And so let me look at some of those ways of interpreting these verses so we can understand what I think Jesus was not saying so that we can understand what I think he was saying. Was Jesus, in, in talking about human beings being created male and female and male, man uh, joining with his wife and, and becoming one flesh, was Jesus describing the divine destiny for all people? That's sometimes how it's taken. Some would say, well, it's not good for humans to be alone, and so God created a partner of the opposite sex, so our loneliness is meant to be fulfilled through a marriage partner, and any deviation from that, not living up to God's ideal, well, that's sin. But if it is a divine destiny for all people, that leads to heterosexual marriage being set up on a pedestal as an ideal. And anyone who isn't in that situation, including those who may be single or partnered or queer or divorced, anyone who isn't in that situation is made to feel less than whole for, for not being there. Not to mention that this approach is, is a, a very Western individualistic perspective. Okay, it cuts out the context of the close-knit community that defined ancient Near Eastern society, as well as many communities of color today. That sense of support from extended family and, and friends and neighbors, the reality that you are never just marrying an individual, you are marrying into a family with annoying cousins and nosy aunts and grandparents that are too free to give you advice, but who you know have prayed their way through hard times. It's no wonder today that marriages feel such a strain. No marriage partner is supposed to meet all of your needs, all of the needs of, of sexual needs and relational needs and emotional needs and intellectual needs and spiritual needs and communal needs and when you're bored. And yet that's the cultural expectation that it's easy for us to unconsciously have. We should also note that the command in Genesis, which immediately follows, is be fruitful and multiply. 
And so the reasoning goes, marriage was for the purposes of procreation. And here again, if we're not careful, those who, for whatever reasons of circumstance or chance or choice, do not have biological children within the context of a heterosexual marriage can be made to feel less than whole. I've seen Christians rail against gay couples being allowed to adopt, give disapproving looks to single parents, or fail to offer compassion to couples who don't have kids for whatever reason that they don't care to ask or know. Whatever their situation is, that some have said, it doesn't match up to the ideal that was laid out in Genesis, and so it's, it's sin. But marriages in the cultures of biblical times, as they understood it, Marriages were, were arranged by one's parents, one's elders, number one. Usually, one's children went through their rites of passage into what they described as adulthood, or what we would call teenagerhood, adolescence. More context that should be considered in order to better understand what is being said and what isn't being said, what assumptions we're bringing, what cultural contemporary assumptions we are bringing to the text. Oh, the most impor important interpretive tool, Jesus himself. Jesus never got married, never had kids. And if Jesus never married or had kids and was still without sin, then this can't be a divine intent or God's ideal for all people. Because Jesus did not meet it. So, then was Jesus describing the divine intent regarding marriage in general, that every marriage should be between one man and one woman. Some might say so. Some have said so. Well, none of the heroes of the faith who had more than one wife, including Abraham and Jacob and David, and yes, note that they were all men, were judged for it. They were cautioned about how they treated their women, like Abraham passing off his wife as his sister to save his own skin, or or about how they acquired their women, like King David taking Bathsheba for his own pleasure and then having her husband killed. King Solomon, he had a lot of wives. 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the thing is, he's not judged for marrying all of those women. He's judged for marrying women from nations that God told Israelites not to marry from because they worshiped other gods. Was Jesus talking about the context for sexual intercourse that belongs in the covenantal marriage relationship? Was that what the one flesh comment was about? Possibly. That anyone who has sex outside of marriage is joining themselves to someone else in a way that they shouldn't. That was the Apostle Paul's interpretation in his letter to the Corinthians. To sleep with someone is to become one flesh with them. And so was Jesus saying that in marriage, two people come together and have sex? Maybe. But he was answering a question about divorce. He wasn't just answering a general, you know, philosophical question about what marriage is and where does sex fit. He was answering the question about divorce. And he said that what God has joined together in one flesh, no human should separate. Now, I don't think he was saying that anyone you have sex with, you should stay with. Okay. I don't think he was saying that anyone, who has, that anyone who has gotten married has been joined together by God. I also don't think he was saying have sex with whomever you want. I do think he would want you to be discerning 
about who you have sex with and, with, and the relational safeguards around this most beautiful of gifts, this most vulnerable of self-expressions, I certainly would. I think Jesus was pointing to a deeper reality that takes place in marriage. In this context of a conversation about divorce, when marriage happens, it is the joining of two individuals into a new social unit, a new relational entity, a new spiritual reality, a new household in community. So any separation is, is, is more than just the ending of a contract. It is the severing of relationships, plural. But more importantly, the passages that Jesus refers to in Genesis, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they come before the fall. Okay? The fall happens in Genesis 3, when the man and the woman eat from the fruit that they were told not to eat from. See, before the fall, all human beings were created equal in the image of God. All human beings were equally given the mandate to steward the earth, to care for it as God would. Before the fall, God created the man and his wife, and they became united as one flesh. They became united. Before the fall, there was equality and there was unity. Equality and unity. It was after the fall that hierarchy and separation entered. It was after the fall that God said to the woman, you will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. Not as a punishment, but as a prophetic declaration about what was going to happen because of sin. It was after the fall. It was because of sin that blame shifting and isolation and shame entered, that patriarchy entered, that objectification entered, that treating others only as a means to our own gratification entered, that a woman's virginity became another thing for men to control. It is because of sin that some Christians think we can just assemble the appropriate parts, one man and one woman, and claim God's blessing like a divine vending machine while proclaiming God's judgment on everyone else and failing to wonder about whether the quality of our marriages and our families and our friendships and our own lives points to the presence of the Holy Spirit, forming us in the character of Jesus and the qualities of God's kingdom that we seek to see here on earth including justice and care for the vulnerable among us. Some would say Jesus refers back to Genesis because that's God's original intent for marriage and sex. I understand how you get there. I do. And I think it's important for us to talk about our ethics what a God-honoring marriage looks like and the appropriate contexts for God-honoring sexual expression and how to respond to the tragedy of divorce. And I do think there is tragedy in every divorce, whether because of how things ended or maybe because they shouldn't have begun in the first place, or maybe because of just the brokenness in our world that, that sometimes makes that gap between two people too much to span this side of Christ's return. It's part of our responsibility as followers of Jesus to discuss and discern these matters together and to live them out as faithfully as we can in community. That's why this, this section of Mark's gospel, it's called following Jesus. It's because we're trying to figure out what does that look like 
practically in our relationships. Next week, we'll talk about children and money. Jesus is asked what's allowed. He answers with what we should strive for. He asks what's allowed, and he answers with what we should strive for. Certainly equality and unity and commitment within marriage for those who are married, but also justice and faithfulness and grace in a world where things inevitably go wrong or where folks inevitably fall outside lines drawn by human beings and sometimes we think by God. When I talked about wrestling with God, wrestling with the hard sayings and acts of Jesus, what I was alluding to is this. A theology that can't handle reality isn't worth holding on to. A theology that can't handle reality isn't worth holding on to. A theology that has no good news to those who don't fit the norm is exactly the opposite of what Jesus came to offer. Jesus came for the sinners. Jesus came for the sick, for the least, and the lost, for the disinherited, for those whose backs are against the wall, for those pushed out and locked out by religious norms, for those wondering if there's any good news for them. Jesus came to show us what God desires for us. It is to be a part of a new family, family of God. In Mark 3, a few chapters earlier, he said when his, 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 his family came to look for him, and he was told, your mother and your brothers are outside. He said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Looking around at those seated around him in a circle, he said, look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. You can read that as Jesus just being a real brat to his family. Or you can read it as Jesus bringing the good news that there's an invitation, whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever story is in your closet, or in the pages before that never felt like you could share with anybody. There's a place for you in God's family. Jesus, Jesus never had sex, never got married, never had kids. That doesn't mean he was less than in any way. In fact, he showed us how to live whether we get those things or not, those things our world tries to say we are incomplete without. He came to invite us, all of us, into life in God's kingdom, into the reality of a new family, not created by blood or by human will, but by faith and the work of God's Spirit. In the law of Moses and in Jewish practice, eunuchs were named as outside of God's covenant community. 
Gentiles and foreigners too. Men were treated as the primary and even the sole agents, those who had choice. And yet the witness of God's people through the trajectory of Scripture and the example of Jesus through word and deed is both pointing to what is good, what to strive for, and applying this prodigal, abundant, outrageous grace. It's hard to hold those things together. <coughs> Holding what to strive for with all of the grace in the world. Grace that seems scandalous to those of us who may not feel like we need it. To those of us who may feel like we earned it. Or at least worked harder for it than the person it's being shown to. So I guess this is where I landed this passage at 5 o'clock this morning. Whatever your relational status, seek the Lord. Strive for what is best. Strive for what is good. Strive for what honors God. That's faithfulness. And douse it with a generous serving of grace. God's grace for you and to you for others. That too is faithfulness. I want to invite you to pray with me. And we're going to take a few moments. I haven't given practical applications or pointers. I haven't said this is what you should do. Here's how you should apply it. I, I, I want God to speak. Whatever is not from God, I pray that it would blow away. Whatever is from God, I pray that it would take root. So two parts. First, what does striving for seeking the best, seeking the kingdom in your life look like? I know we, we are still in a pandemic and uh, our capacities are all taken up. And we're just still surviving. We're still just getting by. And so we may not have taken time. We may not have felt like we had the energy to think about what we're striving for. What are we seeking? What do we want in our lives? What story do we want believe that God is telling through our lives? What is one thing that the Spirit is laying on your heart? And then where is one area that we need to receive the grace of God? Whether for ourselves, or someone we know, someone we love, someone that we're finding it hard to show grace to, or someone that just needs it. I want to ask you to hold those things before the Lord. Commit them to the Lord. Entrust them to the Lord. This is not just about you trying harder to be better, to be nicer, 
is about you receiving the Holy Spirit that will transform you, that will transform your character, that will transform your actions, that will partner you with what God is already doing. God, I pray for my, my friends, my siblings here. God, each of us and all of us, um, these words land different. Maybe for some it's felt too personal. And for some, you know, something I've said is just not sounded right or not landed right. And I, God, I pray that you would, again, that you would wash away what is not of you. But I pray that your spirit would minister to each and every single person in this room. Each and every single person listening, watching. That we would be changed somehow. That we would know a power beyond ourselves somehow. That we would see a vision of what life could be. Not to make us feel guilty, not to make us feel ashamed that we're not there, that we can't get there, but, but to remind us that you're beckoning us on even as you're with us right now. God, I thank you for this. Thank you for this gathering. I thank you for your words that are hard, that are challenging, that, that do push us and stretch us and confront us. And I pray, Lord, we would hear what you are saying. We pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.